You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms, fueled by Joy. You know... We all have that one special dog hanging out on the porch. He's just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. All these things you like coming together to make one superb dog. That was exactly what we had in mind when we made this show. Welcome to All Mixed Up. Lauren, we meet again. What's up? Yes, we see again. <laughs> I, I wondered why you weren't bared out again. You just entered this chat as Lauren. <laughs> I know. The last time we had the Zoom, I said my name was bared out, and now it's just Lauren. And mostly because then I didn't have to push, push the space bar, and it was more <laughs> efficient, and I'm a lazy person. so. <laughs> are you bared out? Um, My dogs sure are. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Yeah, they're uh, they're doing some serious r&r river is pretty much immobile at this point <laughs> um, but they all did really good i mean they put on 50 miles in four days of hunting a little under 50 miles wow so and it was some serious stuff yeah i'm very um, jealous we never very jealous we never treed one i got to see him cross the road a bunch but we were always running little suckers that just like to run and run and run and run right, and that's okay right. The dogs need the miles and they need the tracking. Um, so I've been really busy dealing with dogs and bears and vets and all that. 
Do you, campers, uh, do you think your dog saw tires. the bears? Uh, yes, I think they did. I think River saw a bear for her first time in a river. I think it charged them, like in a creek. Um, because before that, she had only treated them on scent before. And that's it. So mm. I think Dang. she at least saw it. And she was the first dog multiple times, like in front and at road crossings to come out. Nice. So, Man, River's really turning yeah. it on. She really is. And um, opening weekend, her mom and dad apparently were doing really hot too. So it's looking Gotta good. Those Western blue ticks, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just going to be hard keeping weight on her. I know that. So I'm going to try some different stuff out and see what works to keep weight on her. Yeah, you've uh, you've had a lot more of an interesting life than me lately. Everyone knows my sob story this summer, but uh, what else have you been up to? Something's not so good. With you or your no, dog? No, with you. Oh, with me? Oh, yeah. with one of my dogs? Yeah. Um, I'll go into this a little further in detail and, and stuff in, in a different episode, but I have a dog that was diagnosed with blasto over the weekend. I had to go to the ER. Um, it's What's Millie. blasto? Blasto is blastomycosis. It's a fungal infection, and the dogs get it from inhaling a spore. Um, that then turns into a yeast, a fungal infection, um, and it could reside anywhere in the body. It could could start in their spine, could be in their lungs. Um, Millie's got it in her lungs. I think we caught it really early. I think her extreme exertion kind of brought the symptoms on. Um, I had to walk over a mile in the woods to get her, um, and she was puking. She was lethargic. She could barely move, and then she had, like, pink yellow snot just yeah. pouring out of her nose that was so nasty Ugh, I yeah saw pictures of that. i'd never yeah i'd never seen anything like that so um she's got blasto she was down for like two days and now she's back to being her psychotic self so we might be on the mend um usually it's about a 50 percent chance a dog's gonna make it so whoa um yeah Not yeah good. so you guys will learn more about Blasto in the coming months. Um, I'll keep you guys up to date as well. And the rest of my dogs are getting tested as we speak. The pee is off to a lab right now. So, hmm. Hmm. yeah. We'll well, just, I'm glad she we'll sounds like she's recovering. It sounds like she got the lucky end of the, the coin toss. I think so. I think so. Knock on wood. Mm-hmm. So, but she, she went on her first bear track and was doing phenomenally she was staying with the lead dog she was barking and everything and then all of a sudden she like stopped I'm like what the heck did she get eaten by a wolf like what was it and I had to walk I don't know a little over a mile in to get her that's but crazy she was, that's crazy yeah yeah well I'm glad she's better it and is. uh I'm glad you were able to carry her out it's a good thing your dogs ride on your back good <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't know if I could carry her. I actually did carry her out. We just walked really, really slow. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah, and it was like a really sucky walk out. And I'm just horrible with the Garmin. And I think I walked probably further than I needed to on the way out, trying to find my way back to the truck. But Girl, how are you horrible with the Garmin? It literally tells you where <laughs> to go. Well, the problem is, for some reason, it wasn't recording my track. So the line that I took to get to her... So on the way out, I just kept having like look at it and look like at a compass pretty much to see which way to go. And then you'd have to like walk around trees or walk around 
swamps. <laughs> so your direction always got changed. And yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm imagining my forest, not yours. Okay. I'll give you some slack. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was not um pretty it was not a New Mexico forest. That that's easy. When you were in There's the White not a Mountains, whole lot to walk around. You got to experience how nice our forests are. You know what I mean? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like you could walk a straight line if you really wanted to. Oh. I mean, you'd go but, up and down, but you could walk a straight line. I, I when I was in Canada, they were like, Yeah, the bear's a mile and a half away. And I was like, Cool, let's go. That sounds wonderful. That's gonna be a really nice walk. And then I realized <laughs> that's the worst idea in the world, and we're not gonna walk. <laughs> yeah. I mean a that's mile and a half much walk. Like. A mile and a half walk anywhere in the forest that you experienced is like really nice. Like that's like a serious pastime for like fifty percent of the outdoor population. You know what I mean? Right. And I got <laughs> on the radio and I said I said something, I'm like because I didn't have my handheld, because um, of course I can't find the charger. So I went on the radio before I left my truck. I'm like, if I'm not back in 45 minutes, send a search party. <laughs> <laughs> and then they were like calling for me. They were standing by my truck, like yelling for me and I could hear. And I came out on like a different logging trail that I found. And I'm like trying to yell for them and they can't hear me. And I'm just like, why don't they just look at the GPS and see that Millie is moving Mm-hmm. and they can see that she's like on her way out so obviously yeah. she's with me yeah uh. <laughs> well again glad you made it too <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah we well really... especially with my bump with my bum knee oh, oh man yeah. it was on fire Wait, how is that have you got it even diagnosed no no i'm just working through it i'm just powering through tisk tisk dude tisk tisk do you see how I'm uh, running around skim- scampering at maximum capacity? That is because right. I went and got it looked at immediately and got it fixed immediately. And now I'm back yeah. to Scamper City. Now with this blasto thing, I'm like, well, then I'm already going to meet my deductible going to the knee be- people. So then if I get tested for blasto too, then it'll pretty much be covered. So I just need yeah. The more health things wrong with me, the more the better I feel about going to the doctor. Oh my goodness! But yeah, we've we've got some stuff lined <laughs> up today. Yeah, we have a great show today, everybody. Um, really excited for it. Our theme this month is the animals that help houndsmen succeed. So I wanted to take a deep dive into animals that are extreme performance that aren't our hounds but are with us. So. Um, we're going to roll right into them, you guys. Uh, the first segment's going to be with Mr. Brett Vaughn. Everybody knows him, born 100 years too late. He only lives about 15 minutes down the road from me. And uh, anytime we get together, no joke, minimum three hours of talking. Um, I got uh, a lot of awesome content with him. We just chat. We have a lot in common. We both are passionate about the desert and the top carnivores that live here. And uh you know what? Lucky for me, he likes himself a rabbit race too. So we have a lot in common. Uh, and we had a great time. And then um, after that, uh, I talked to my good friend, Joshua Poole. We've chatted in the past before, and uh, he's a really cool guy. He's a falconer. And I wanted to talk to you guys about how we're training those birds to hunt with dogs. So stay tuned, you guys. It's going to be sweet. But first, as always, I want to roll straight into the news. Let's do it. All right, guys, I've got some news for you and kind of good news and mostly bad news. We'll go with mostly bad news. Um, So if you guys have been 
anywhere around the internet, I guess, except for Seth, because he just found out because I told him today. <laughs> uh, there is <laughs> there is a new um, act called the Return Act, repealing excise tax on unal- unalienable rights now that has been introduced. Uh, this is bad news bears and not bad news just for the bears for a lot of other things. So it would repeal the federal excise tax on rifles, shotguns, and ammunition, as well as reduce similar taxes on archery and fishing equipment. Now you guys know when I talk about those taxes, you should know what that means. That means Pippin Robertson dollars, right? So that money has been set aside for conservation, wildlife management, hunter education, and the construction of facilities for sportsmen, such as boat ramps, shooting ranges, et cetera. So in 1937, the Pittman-Robertson Act was put into place, and um, it, there's, there's no reason to repeal this. The, the funny thing is, too, is that it's a Republican that has uh, introduced this, and it has 53 co-sponsors. And um, what else? I'm going to interject um, real quick to me, like this just is, and this, this bill is in its infancy. You guys, luckily we have organizations like that are looking out for us, like sportsman's Alliance is looking out for us and they catch these things early. And this is important. This just is absurd. And I'm just going to say it right now. I'm sure there's some nuance that someone could put out a really nice argument to me, but the Pittman Robertson act is one of the most successful acts in wildlife history, raising billions with a B of money, 1.5 billion a year, a year to support wildlife refuges, wildlife habitat management, federal agencies that are watching over our wildlife guys Our great. One of our greatest allies in this is target shooters. And this is exactly what this bill is trying to repeal. We understand that ammunition is super expensive, but the amount of money that's going to be repealed from this act isn't going to take much off the cost of your bullets. And it's going to take a lot out of the cost of wildlife. It's going yeah, to cost and that money lot. trickles down to the states. It's not just used federally. So think about even like your little, your state agencies. Um, so the representative that introduced it, so you guys know his name, is Andrew Clyde from Georgia. Um, and it was introduced on June 22nd, 2022. So take a look at it. Keep Keep involved. Read about it. And we're against it. I'm against it. There's, Look, there's a, no reason. I'm, I'm totally a, happy to pay. I'm happy yeah. to pay the money. A person who's fiercely um, advocates public land. How else are we going to fund public land and protect the wildlife that's out there? We already have this established system. And this act isn't even about, you know, updating, refurbishing, renovating, you know, revolutionizing the Pittman Robertson act for the modern era. No, it just wants to get rid of it just to say, oh, I lowered your tax yeah. burden. So then where are those funds going to come from? Are they going to sell the exactly. public land? You, you can't rob Peter to pay Paul. And if that, what you said happens, I'll be the first one on the street going insane. So I don't know. I just, guys, thank you, Sportsman's Alliance, for you know posting this. S- stick around and watch this, you guys. It doesn't matter what political party you're on. Common sense has to come through for us. And you got to be able to see these things that uh, really do not help us, sportsmen, unless you only hunt on private land. But I mean, most of us in the West don't. So I only occasionally do. So let's stay alert 
And uh, thanks, Lauren. That, that was really good to hear. You're welcome. Let's move to the Midwest now. You're talking about the West a little bit, but Pittman-Robertson goes everywhere. <clears throat> Moving to the Midwest, uh, we've got to talk about some wolf stuff. And everybody's like, oh, it's always wolf stuff, but it's always wolf stuff. Uh, Minnesota released their uh, wolf plan, and it's actually relatively short. Um, and I just wanted to let you know and give you just the information that their public comment is open until 4.30 p.m. on Monday, August 8th. The website that you go to is mndnr.gov slash wolves. Um, and basically, you can public comment on it. Right now, there's no hunting of wolves, obviously, because of the ESA. Um, using dogs on wolves is not allowed in Minnesota. Um, we'll add all these links to the show notes, by the way, guys, so you can you don't have to write this down right now. Um, but Minnesota's wolf population probably does need some management, but I think it's like 53 pages long. So take a look at the plan, add your public comment. If you have some, just be involved because if there's public comment that's just coming from one side, then everything's going to be skewed. Right. And if you don't have the ability to public comment, you know, Raise some hell. I mean, really, that's the only thing that's going to have our voice be heard. And I, I mean that constructively, obviously, I'm not advocating rioting, but make sure that the reasons that your voice can't be heard is known, because that's what happened well, to us in New Mexico. I was just going to say, look what happened to the trapping situation in New Mexico. Yes. They couldn't, they wouldn't even hear some people. Me? <laughs> I wanted to speak yeah. as a private citizen. They, I couldn't even speak. So it's like, right. uh, Anyway, yeah, so um, continue, Lauren. I apologize. <laughs> no, there's there's really nothing more to say about that. I mean, obviously, the Great Lakes population of wolves, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, they're all related. So I think we all need to be involved, even if Minnesota is not your state. Take a look at it, research it, add your comment. Pretty easy. Um, Wisconsin's a little bit different here now. Usually, you know, if you're at the hospital, no news is good news or whatever. No news is good news usually because when you turn on the news, it's always bad stuff, right? Unless <laughs> well, you specifically not... subscribe to good news. <laughs> is there something, is there an app for that? There is. I would love that. Oh, All there right, is? I'll send you it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, anyway, so in Wisconsin, no news is bad news. Wisconsin DNR cannot get their act together. What a fiasco. So the draft of the wolf management plan was supposed to be released initially around February. Then they postponed it and said it was going to be quote unquote in spring. Spring ended technically June 21st, I believe was the date. Now we are mid July and we still do not have a plan. Why is there the delay? Guess what? This is, this is not the first time this has happened. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there have been three attempts in 12 years to get a plan together. And that, my good fellow citizens, is the reason why a wolf hunt did not happen. Because when there was that suit, it was like, well, there's not an updated plan. That's why we didn't get that hunt the second time around. Because the DNR drug their feet. So the last time a plan should have been in place was early 2015. 
So it's because the Wisconsin DNR, DNR refused to complete the last attempt at a management plan. Why did they spend all these dollars, all these man hours, all of this time to halfway put a plan together and say, oh, well, I guess if they're on the ESA, it doesn't matter. We're just not going to do it. Well, Minnesota's putting their plan together. Yeah. Why is Wisconsin doing this? It's extremely contentious in Wisconsin. I don't know what it is about Wisconsin. It's all politics. Well, it's always politics. Yeah. Yeah. Man. But yeah. so the last plan was signed in in 2007. So we need to get some boots on the ground, t- keys on the internet, fingers on the keys, and we need to start complaining because this is going to repeat. History is going to repeat itself if we don't get involved and start saying something. So um, honestly, guys, I would start with Randy Johnson. He's a large carnivore biologist. It's randy.johnson at wisconsin.gov is his email. And let's kind of raise some hell. Yeah. And and what uh what conservation organization are you a member of, Lauren? The was WBHA. Yeah. And Wisconsin Coon Hunters Club Association, um, Sportsman's Alliance. What else? <laughs> yeah, you're super um, Wisconsin, super involved. Wisconsin yeah. Trappers. I love yeah. that. Yeah, you're there, Wisconsin. Even though it's such a politically supercharged area, at least you have a lot of resources. Oh, you're getting mugged by a dog. <laughs> I think I may have just lost Lauren. I just saw a dog jump up on the bed. <laughs> that was River. Yeah, I thought so. I thought so. <laughs> Look at her. She's crazy. She she obviously is getting her energy back. I can't even get it to the window. Okay, so Wisconsin. So, yeah, speaking of crazy Wisconsin, you got crazy blue ticks jumping around all over Lauren. <laughs> what a, Lauren, yeah. when are they not crazy? Any, did you have any news to add? No, that was it. Short but and you sweet. Guys are gonna, yeah, you guys are going to laugh or be excited or I'm not sure what it is. Once we're done with the content that Seth is going to uh, give us right here, you'll hear what animal I want to use in addition to my dogs. <laughs> well, I'm going to just roll right into it. The next segment, you guys, is with Mr. Brett Vaughn. We're talking everything mules, mules, horses, keeping them healthy, Everybody knows Brett, born 100 years too late. He is a mule guy. He's out riding through the desert southwest, catching dry ground lions and some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen. And lucky for us, it's our backyard. So uh, let's listen to Mr. Brett Vaughn talk about keeping extreme performance mules, hunting for extreme performance hounds. So what, do you, what are you doing to keep a mule in like tip-top shape? What, what do you think the most important things? And I, I don't, you don't have to get super into the and specifics, that, but I know you take good care of your animals. What are you doing, thinking about all the time to make sure you keep a hunting mule hunting? Well, I mean, of course, you know, uh, worming them twice a year. I, <clears throat> I try to worm in the spring and worm in the fall. Where do they get worms from? <clears throat> you know, probably eating their own crap out okay, there. Okay, yeah. Picking around. We're like insects lay eggs in there. <laughs> yeah, and then, they, and then okay. they eat it. And then, okay. and then you know, if they get, if they, you know. If, Dirty feet or something. Yeah, and then you, if they don't look like they're coming clean, then, you know, worm them again three weeks later and try to rotate your wormers. You know, I use the uh, Symmetrin, and then I'll rotate to that other stuff that comes. I forget the name of it right now. But 
you rotate the wormers, and, and you can tell by looking at them, you know, they're... they're they hair, start to draw down if they're they, wormy? Well, their hair gets coarse. They don't look like they're thriving, that they're doing good. You know, they're not, they're not real, you know, just like your dogs, you sure, know. They sure, sure. will look the same, and they're not getting all the benefit of their feed. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, you're riding that rough country. You're riding your big circles every day. You've got to keep shoes on them. For the most part, you know, I've rode Agnes for the last two years without shoes, and uh, but I haven't been able to hunt as hard as I did in the past. So I don't know. I, and I've heard guys say they've had mules that didn't need to be shod. I've never, every mule I've had, had to be shod. Let's talk about shoes because that's, uh, and I'm going to ask questions that there's some people that are listening to this. They're probably horse experts and they're just like, oh, I don't need whatever, but sure. I'm not a horse expert. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I'm not really, a, I mean, I know how to ride a horse, but I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not like, a, you know, rodeo star, but sure. what, why, why shoe them? What does it do for them besides the obvious of just like protecting that hoof? What just wears that hoof off, you know, and gets down into their their quick or whatever. So it, the weight of the, the sharp rocks, they just wouldn't naturally be in a place like that? They'll get, they'll get bruised and they wear that oh, hoof dang. off until it gets in the quick or whatever and they get sore foot. Is it good to have, if you had a mule with like longer hooves, do you think you could have them unshod and ride them through there to grind Well, then they're down? liable to break off. They break uh, off and if they break off too far, then they'll, then they get sore footed. It's get, like the quick of your nail. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you trust to try to keep them. A good farrier is what I'm hearing. <laughs> a good farrier, and 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 for the <laughs> for the mules more. You need maybe you don't need such a good farrier, but you have to have a willing farrier, one that's really willing. Because <clears throat> I've heard before they said, you know, it's not that mules kick and horses don't. It's just that mules hit what they kick at. <laughs> so, but yeah, a lot of a lot of the you know the the fancy farriers they don't want to crawl underneath a mule. Really. Well, yeah, a lot yeah. Of they get, you know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, and 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 they don't have to be, you know, they have to be what I call cowboy shod. They don't have to be. I mean, I rode roping horses for years, and we were real particular about the how people, you know, how they how they shod. Hoof angulation and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, having everything correct. Wow. And uh, with the mule, I'm not that worried about. Are that. you riding just at a walk most of the time? Most all the time. Perfect. Right. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. no galloper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you you want to get around or something. And one thing about it's cool about a mule, you can hit a long trot and cover a lot of country. I always liked loping because it's really smooth and it's fast enough. Yeah. But I'm it's, not a super experienced rider. Galloping was it's fast. But it's not like, you know, you watch the old western movies and they're yeah and they're yeah. running everywhere they go well they're not going to run very far because <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> that gallop that lope will wear them out you know but you can cover my and i don't know but my dad had always told me my dad's an old horseman i mean f- forever my dad's 88 years old and, and uh he said you can he said you can cover a lot of ground just at a long trot just hit a long trot and, and i mean yeah go. that's a really efficient gate and yeah well how fast do you think that is Probably about seven eight miles an hour yeah because that on, in the in the mountains in the rough country, just walking, I'll average a little bit less than three miles an hour, and that's on Agnes. She's not a real fast walking mule, and uh, but that's all day long. Yeah. You know, we, we can cover you know fifteen twenty miles at at two and two two point eight because I carry my Garmin and I always yeah. reset it and I kind of check the stats. I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, two point eight three miles an hour. Now I just traded for a mule that's gated. That is a fast walking sucker. Now I don't know if it's going to help me at all, but I know, I know for just like say I got plans. If 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 my plan works out and 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 my business, you know, I have somebody run my business. I'm going to go and ride a lot of this country, 
you know, and not take any dogs with me. Just ride the country. Can I come? Yeah. Because I love exploring the state. Try to, try to. So much to explore. Yeah. Try to cut sign. Just cut sign to see what. Northwest you know. of town? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, yeah, I'm going to go way up high. Oh, okay. Some of that more oh. wilderness type country. Nice. And Still uh, in the desert though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah well, yeah. high desert. Really. Yeah. High desert. Yeah. But I, that's, and I think that a mule like that would be fun. Now I, I've heard it, you know, people tell different stories that Mike Root, now Mike Root, you know Mike. He's a legend. Legend lion hunter. Legend. I mean, it just yeah. is. And and then a buddy of mine, Sid Savage, and if I can plug my other podcast that I do, I did sit down and talk to to Sid and and it should be coming out on 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 a on the podcast soon. Sid Sid's like a fart in a bottle. He rides through the country 900 miles an hour. And he hunts with Mike Root quite a bit. And Mike tells him, said, Sid, you're never going to start a lion out here. But if you're going that fast, you got to give these dogs time. you got to give them time. You're not going to start a lion. Because Sid just – and Sid has a gated mule. And, I mean, that they can walk through the country real huh. fast. And, Dang. And Wait, what is that? What is a gated mule? What does that mean? I mean, I know like what a, it means, but explain. Gated it. horse, they got that little shuffle walk that they can just really move through the country. And uh, it's a – I don't know. It's a it's a gate. It's, it's a different it's a kind of gate. Yeah. Kind of, I guess between a walk and a trot. I don't. I don't. Honestly, I don't know that much about gated mules. I rode. You're gonna find out. <laughs> I rode. A, I rode the world champion gated mule one time. I had some guys come down to to hunt with me, and this guy was a mule man from Missouri. Big time. I can't remember the name of his outfit. He sells lots and lots of mules, and gets a lot of money for his mules. And he came and he said, "Here, get on this mule and ride this mule." And Man, and? ooh, it's nice. <laughs> Boy, you can cover so it's the worth country. It. Yeah, oh, yes. I guess. Are they smooth too? And smooth then... and yeah, you're just like you're just level. Is it trained or bred or both? It's bred. Okay, it's a it's, it's a, a walking gate. style it's, that it's they a do. Gate. Okay, that, that is bred. Got it. And uh, yeah, because I like... and I took those guys because I had heard stories about gated horses, especially in rough country, that they don't get around very good. And man, I took them. I tested them. I took them through some rough, rough country, and they didn't have any problems at all. Let me ask you uh, now. So we're talking traveling here. What is a reasonable distance to push a good mule? Like not push. Just what is what's a sustainable, extreme distance that you can hunt on a mule daily to to you know have a good time and keep them healthy, keep them you know, covering I, ground. I think twelve to. 16 miles, I guess, it's a day. pretty is, easy is, for them. Is, you know, and it depends on the country. Of course, of course. If you're, you know, this country out here that I hunt, out here just, just west of the house, you know, you can make 15-mile circles out there every day, and yeah. you're not going to wear them out. That's sustainable. Sustainable. Up there in the big country, you know, anytime I got over 15, 16 miles in a day, they're tired. Everything was tired. That's it, up, down, up, down, canyon land, though. Big, steep. Yeah inclines where you're really climbing you know for my for that place is so underrated that's some of the most beautiful high desert country in southern new mexico oh yeah okay. it's unbelievable it's just beautiful vista everywhere oh. you look yeah and it's all wilderness with a capital w which is capital what i really w. like there nobody uses it yeah. i hunted up there for well i owned the place up there for 10 years and i lived up there for almost three and this up in the ponderosas or is this go pinyon still? go through the go from the from the pinyons up into the ponderosas? Okay. I was talking like in the the like around like Lake Valley area, like up in those desert hills. Yeah, that's well, that's that's you go west of there into the Macho and back up into that country. Yeah, and then and then turn north, and there's a 
I shouldn't even be talking about. I'm, well, not gonna that's, use, I'm using vague names. I'm not going <laughs> to use any names, but there's a world up there that nobody even accesses. It's just, well. Because it's landlocked. Yeah. They can't. The, the, the public access has to go through private to get to it. And you got to know how to get in there. Good thing you're a lion hunter. <laughs> yeah. I got invites to just, or permissions, I guess you should say, for most of that country. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. A world, it's a world up there. I mean, oh, I, and that's where I'd set my tent up, you know. And I had like five different ways to access that tent where I could park on one side and ride into it, spend the night and ride out. And um, shoot, I never, I, I was too busy. What, what are you feeding your mules? I just feed them. Uh, I don't, I don't feed them fresh cut green alfalfa. You Does know, that first, bloat them? No, makes them stupid. Okay, break it down. It affects my, their brain for the most part. How? <laughs> it just makes them what we call high. They're just it's like. It's not high, yeah. And then I, you know, Agnes, she's a real calm, easygoing mule. Nothing bothers her. I've had those uh, fool's quail, what do you call them? The Montezuma quail. Explode underneath her belly and her not even. They're so dumb. <laughs> not even blink. Just keep on walking and and. I can get off of her and drop the reins and walk. I come back an hour later and she's might be 10 foot away from where I dropped her. She's real easy, easy to get along with easy. But I, I, I bought some hay and, uh, it was first cut alfalfa and that's all I could get. I was out of hay and, uh, she, I mean, she got playing stupid. So you think it's just their high energy? Yeah, too just... much. They feel too good. I think they feel too good. Yeah. yeah they're just too frisky. Yeah. And, huh. and, so I, and that's, you know, then you're, uh, losing one of the, uh, advantages of having a, of, of a mule, you Steady. don't have, try to find some striped hay. We call it striped hay. That's a, a little discolored. Maybe, you know, here in the Valley, we get what, seven cuts. I'm not sure. Six, six full cuts and maybe a clipping or something like that of alfalfa hmm. and try to get that, that third or fourth cut that's growing in the middle of the summer. And that doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it grows so fast that it's not as hot. It's gotcha. Not, it's not as nutritious. Yeah. yeah, it's not as nutritious. So you feed that, and it's better. And and when I'm riding them hard, you know, I grain yeah. them too. I I'll, I'll feed them a lot. I I would think that the best way, if you had access to it, which we don't have a lot of access here, if you could keep a uh, grass hay in front of them uh-huh. all the time, and then when you're riding them hard, grain them. No, and, 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 you know, you'd have to, what percentage, I don't know. You'd have yeah. to calculate it. Each animal's different. Yeah. yeah. But the but, grain is just richer food source, more carbs, like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. More, more nutrition, I guess, in a smaller package. They don't gotcha. have to eat as much, but you keep grass hay in front of them all the time. And that's good for their digestion and everything gives them something to do. And what kind of saddles are you riding? I have, uh, I have a saddle that was made. F- I got two saddles that were, were made for me. Uh, it's a, uh, that I don't have mule bars on them. They, I have regular quarter horse bars, uh, modified association tree, and they were both made more or less. The one was made for, uh, I, I did, I wanted as lightweight as possible, Yeah, of course. but still you could, this, this, that saddle you can rope and I rope out of, and I've roped some steers and stuff out of it. And, uh, then I had another one, James Morris made me one. That to my spec, what I wanted, it's, it's lighter weight. It's still got a rawhide tree, but it doesn't have a dally horn on it. And, uh, it's pretty light, fairly light for what it is, but there's a guy, I'll give this guy a plug. There's a guy it's called, if you're on Instagram and if you, if you message him or whatever, tell him I sent you, 
I want him to make me a saddle. It's got the wild, the, his thing, it's called the wild in us. And this guy's a packer and he's a saddle maker. And he makes a, 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 a mountain saddle and then what they call a long rider saddle. And I'd love to have one of those long rider saddles. They're just more comfortable for long-term riding? Maybe a little more comfortable, but light. Got it. There's no, there's, for what I do, it's not like I'm going to go up there and and rope a big old bull or anything. You need, I don't see any reason to carry all that extra weight. Totally agree. So you could have a lightweight saddle, something with enough strings and everything on it. So you could tie your stuff off that you carry with you. How much is lightweight? I think that saddle, I think that saddle without any uh, taps on it or anything. And when I say taps, I mean the tapadero is the, the covered stirrups okay and you need those when you're riding up there in that Brushy. country i ride in yeah because of the brush and the rock you know you hit yeah. your foot on a rock and and uh then in the in the winter time you can take sheepskin and put it in those taps oh, and it wow. keeps your toes warm and uh <laughs> but, live in luxury yeah well you learn luxury all the tricks <laughs> <laughs> but this guy makes that saddle and i think it comes in at 19 pounds oh wow yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's super not, light. Yeah, it's a neat saddle. Now it's unconventional. When you look at it, you think it's got like a. You just have to see it. The yeah. wild in us, guys. Just if you if you see it, that I'm not sponsored. <laughs> I want I want to be sponsored, but be. I'm not sponsored. <laughs> so so you not only so yeah, that's the thing I was gonna say. Saddle, it's everything, and you, you can't skimp on a good saddle. You know where they're where I'm giving yeah. rubs and stuff. But you're also a guy who packs. Too, you have a, and that's my dream. I would walk oh, if I could lead one that would carry all my crap for yeah. me. Well, and so you ride and have one that carries all your crap for you. So talk, break down a pack saddle for us, and then break down how to do it right because that's what everyone says. You can't just throw stuff on an animal's back. No. You got to know what's up. Break I, it down. I, you, well, uh, and I'm not a packer. The, you know, not yeah, yeah, yeah. The guys that there's, I mean, there's guys who of are course. packers. They can throw every kind of hitch in the world, and they. Talk about packing a piano down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Now, I'm not one of those guys. I pack just good enough to be able to carry what I need. What and is that, it that you need after? Sorry, I got so many no, questions. No, 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 go ahead. No, no, uh, let's let's break it. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Okay, we'll, yeah. I use a sawbuck saddle, and, and that's there's two kinds of pack saddle. Well, there's probably more than that, but there's a decker and a, and a sawbuck. And typically with a decker, you mante up your load. That means they, 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 they use a tarp, and they put all their stuff in a tarp tie it up a certain way and then then they tie it hmm. to their to their to the decker saddle i've never done that i i've always packed i started with my dad when i was a kid i was 10 11 years old and we packed into the gila wilderness and we just used a, a sawbuck saddle and those are the ones that are like this right yes exactly the, i made two crosses in two my crosses arms. yeah it's a sawbuck and uh uh use uh well, with my dad all we ever had was these old canvas type panniers and your panniers is what you put your stuff in and uh, now I have some hard panniers, and then I have some of these, uh, I think they call them Montana panniers. They're real deep. And then I've got some that, uh, uh, oh, I bought somewhere, but they're just, they're lightweight, little canvas type, not canvas, but this, what do you call that? Uh, it's like, yeah. Go, like, not Gore-Tex, is it Gore-Tex? Or, uh, well, Gore-Tex is the, like, uh, like neoprene or something? I don't know. It's 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 a tough fabric. And uh, Canvas-like. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I use those panniers, and, and I just... I use a mani tarp on top, 
pack and balance your load. That's you know, key, right? You got to have it balanced. Yeah, I got a set of scales that I use to, oh, wow. to, to make sure that I have it balanced. If you don't balance it, then so you, you weigh first, then put it in. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. Yep. So you balance your load, make sure that it's it's because it's, you're carrying dead weight. Yeah. You know I mean, so that's a lot harder than, than a man sitting up there. Yeah. So. Because you you move around and help the animal yeah. with your balance. If, yeah. If you don't ride like a sack of potatoes, then you then you sit up there and you use your legs as to balance to keep everything going or keep you balanced and and you balance balance your panniers and and uh, throw a tar. I throw a tarp over the top of it and I I just throw a, a, a one man diamond and a one man diamond and, and I use a top pack. And it's not a pack. I, I, I fill my panniers with I, what I need, and then I carry my sleeping bag. And uh, if I have a little tin or something, and then you can carry a, a crossway, or not crossways, but uh, with the angle of your, of, your, of your mule, you can carry your, your, your chair and a little, I got a little fold-up table. Awesome. And then you, you know, some comforts. That's the thing. You can, uh, you can carry stuff that actually makes your life nice out there. Yeah. And I use, you know, a lot of the old timers, they, they, they carried, you know, canned food and stuff like that, that carried a lot of weight because that's all they knew. That's all you had. But now I use, you know, lightweight backpacker stuff. You know, I pack a jet boil and dehydrated meals and I make and I make a lot of my dehydrated meals myself they're pretty good yeah actually and and i carry you know i of course because i film i carry a big uh battery pack that i can recharge my camera and how stuff. many animals are you carrying pack you have one or two pack animals with you uh just one usually for myself one. but i made some me and a buddy of mine packed through the wilderness several times over the years and we would each carry two pack animals but we carried uh pellets to, to or yeah pellets to feed the that was gonna extra say, feed what what is a good weight a sustainable weight for you and you're just doing like say a two or three day trip what's a sustainable weight to load up your pack mule with i think you know i think they carry 140 pounds 150 pounds pretty easy and that's pretty is that easy or hard to do like when you say 140 pounds is that you having to like cut your toothbrushes off to make sure they cut weight no or? no i don't ever it's do easy like to stay that. under that's 140 easy, yeah, yeah pack feed for them or are they gonna yeah, graze or? i'll pack pellets and then you try to hobble them or uh i i uh stake stake them out stake yep. out one mule and hobble the other one and what okay Some what does hobbling are, mean exactly you tie their front feet together got it it's it, a set of hobbles but let me tell you what now they'll walk they'll hobble off and leave you in the middle of the night <laughs> if you don't have one tied up oh yeah keep them anchored because the other <laughs> one will just not leave the other mule right they'll just stick around yeah, yeah. Jet, now that jet johnson a mule of mine he'll lead them all off and you'll go hunting for we lost him for like three or four miles when or had to go backtracking and uh, that sounds like a nightmare it was we, <laughs> well we heard him leave in the middle of the night and me and buddy of mine i looked at Juan. i said dad gum those mules left and he said well, i ain't getting up because <laughs> it was cold we were it was december and it was like three degrees outside and we were sleeping in our sleeping bags and he said, I'm not getting up. And He's said, out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. He said, we'll find him in the morning because his horses, his horses stayed tied up. And next morning we got up and took the horses and we went and found them. That's good. But Jed will leave you. He'll, he, I don't know why. He'll just, he'll hobble off and leave, unless you have one mule tied up to a tree. Where got it. He's stay. not a loner. Yeah. Uh-uh. And so, I usually stake him. I got a, a cuff that goes on one front foot. Okay. And a long rope, a long cotton rope, soft cotton rope. And, uh. So I tie him out like a dog. I tie him to a tree. And he'll just, he won't tangle himself or anything? No, no, he's done it. Yeah, he's 
he's done it for a lot, so he don't. That's I was going to ask you. So camping with mules, what are some essential things you should have for the care of that animal and making your life easy with them? Yeah. Hobbles and stakes, clearly. Yeah, hobbles and stakes and a, 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 a morale. We call it a morale, a feed bag. Okay, that's, that's what you, what you feed just... them with. Goes over their face and 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 feed them and and I think you know a guy probably should carry uh, banamine with you and I've never had to use it on my mules but we've used it on the horses. What is that? It's a muscle relaxer. Oh wow! And, and in case they colic, and my buddy with his horses every we, that first day we'd always ride you know fifteen or twenty miles and that first night it never failed at least one of his horses would tie up or colic. And, uh, just from riding that hard. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I hmm. guess that's what caused it. I'm not real sure, but the banamines is a lifesaver because it's a muscle relaxer and it'll, it'll allow their, their, the muscles to relax and their gut to chill to out. relax. Yeah. Yeah. And then, just... and it's best now a lot of guys would give it in the vein or in the muscle, but, uh, I don't, I, I think you need to be able to learn how to get put, hit the vein and, and give it, put it in the vein. What about hydration for them? Because we live in obviously a really dry area. How often should you be watering a mule if you're just, say, just a normal hunt where you're just walking them or whatever? What, what is, uh, talk about how you keep them from getting dehydrated out there and how long can they go comfortably without water if you're I, just normal stuff? I offer them water every time I come across it. Yeah. I mean, I'll offer them, but mostly they'll just drink morning and night and typically not even morning. Wow. They'll, they'll drink at night. They are tough. Yeah, and, and and some mules, like uh, a buddy of mine came down and hunted with me, and he had a mule. I guess I can say the mule's name. You said I, it doesn't matter. They called him Shithead Ned. <laughs> and that mule drank lots of water. Every time there was a little puddle anywhere, he had Maybe to Maybe he's super it. smart. Yeah, he, he he was a character. He just drank lots and lots of water. Shithead's pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's something I always thought about is, you know, I'm sure, you know, you're, you're hunting in the winter. You're not hunting in the hottest part of the day where it's dangerous yeah. for a hound too. But I was just curious if you had to pack water for them or you always mm. make sure you're hunting around tanks or something where they can come down and drink. Sometimes I'll offer them water because I pack water. When I was hunting, I started here a couple years ago taking a pack meal when I was just hunting, just day hunts. Yeah. And I wasn't staying out. I would take some extra stuff, and, and then I didn't have to carry my saddlebags on the back of my mule. One of the worst things you can do is get these oversized saddlebags that some of these outfits sell and pack a whole bunch of weight on the back of your saddle. Well, you're, you're, you're packing weight on your, on your mule's kidneys, and, and, and you can soar your mule up real fast. So I've got some big old saddlebags that go back there and everything, but everything in it's real lightweight. And when I take a pack mule, I don't put that. I don't even carry Why? it. On. Yeah. I don't even carry nothing back there. Maybe, you know, my jacket's rolled up and, and, and tied behind These my These are the kind of tips I'm looking for. You would never even think that. Yeah, yeah. no. A lot of guys, you'll see them packing all this stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, I just don't. My saddle animal, you know, I try to keep it as light as possible. So when you're hunting, say, three or four days, are you alternating between who's packing and who's riding? And no. No. So you ride the same one? I ride. A lot of guys do, though. They okay. will. And and possibly I've talked about this on my YouTube videos a few times and some live shows that I've done that eventually I want to, I want to do, uh, what they call a long ride. I want to, <laughs> I want to ride over a thousand miles consecutive from, I want to ride from here to Nevada. And, uh, I know it sounds crazy, but there's a play, there's a thing called the long riders guild. So when you've done that, then they induct you into the long riders guild. 
And it's, I know it's crazy. It, I'm over here just you, like wide-eyed. People you know look I mean? at me the same I mean, way you just look at me. I'm the kind of guy who, that sounds pretty rad if I was more comfortable on horses and stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. on, But I love that kind of stuff. Being out in the wild isn't really a problem for me. That's where I like to be. But yeah, yeah that's rad. And, and another thing I was thinking too is, um, you know, and, and interject with anything that I need to have, but these are like exactly what I, what I had in mind. But, um, when you're, when you're, um, is it better to take just, you know, like a rider and a packer, or is it sometimes better to have a spare animal with you in case something happens? Or do you usually just keep your team right there rock solid with what you're doing there? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, Really, the only reason I started to take a pack mule is just to pack water on my day hunts. Yeah. If, like if I'm hunting out here west of the river, there's no need to take a pack mule. You just take a saddle mule and, and take minimum stuff. You know, you don't need all that stuff. Or Up in the mountains, I never took a pack mule. I, I probably should have a lot of times, but we had access to water and everything. Yeah. And it was just a day hunt. And, and uh, But I, you were talking earlier about the romance. I like the romance of taking a pack mule. And there he is again. <laughs> You're a busy man. Oh, no kidding. You weren't joking. <laughs> I know. It's six days a week. I, I, you're running right through there. I wanted to ask you, is there things that you need to know when a mule's had enough? How do you know when it's time to put them away? Because that's one of the biggest <laughs> lessons I learned sight hound hunting is having someone like Justin Heist to be like, mm-mm, you're that's done, enough. son. You know? Mule usually lets you know when he's done. That's, Just that's how, that, how? That self-preservation. You're not going to. Where a horse, you can push them till they die, and I don't think you can push a mule that far. You think they'll just resist? They'll just quit you. They just lock up or what? Just stop. Yeah. I heard uh, that guy I was talking about, <laughs> Sid Savage, and his, uh, I think it was his uncle or something, they got way back off into the, the wilderness up there. They were trailing a lion, I guess, and got off in East Curtis Canyon, and East Curtis Canyon was always the place where you just, you always ended up back there. It's just like... That's where they go. Yeah. So and we'd end up back there a lot. And he ended up there and his buddies or his uncle's mule quit him. And they ended up just spending the night back there. And they didn't even have any matches. They almost froze to death. That's a funny story. You'd have to hear Sid tell it. But he said, there we are. And, and during the wintertime, the sun never shines in East Curtis Canyon. It just doesn't too shine deep. in there. Yeah, it's too deep. And too, and it's a cold booger. And he said, and Sid sitting there, him and him and his uncle sitting there hugging. So, Got to do what you got to do. <laughs> Next to each other. Sid saying, oh, I hope nobody rides over that hill and sees us. <laughs> Broke back canyon. Broke back canyon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's – okay, so um, you, they just lock up and quit. They just – but how do you how do you know? Because what, what are things that could cause a mule well, to quit? You, you can – just too overdoing it. Just just – feet back well they'll get sore backed i guess that'll cause them you'll you if you get them sore they'll let you know one how way or another. they just Either they can act up or they yeah. just don't want to do anything or they'll throw you off you know i'd seen in your videos you were talking about agnes had a sore back you like petted her back gently always, she kind of flinched out of the way and you were like oh dang i always check their back you know run my hands down their spine make sure that they're they don't have any bad sore spots you push in like pressure that. with your just fingers push pressure they'll they'll give a little bit they'll always be a little bit tender but not you know You'll know when you, they'll just, they'll, ah, like just, they'll just squat down and act like they're dying, you know. Do you need to check their feet often? Yeah, I probably, you know, you, you go and be going down through there and you'll notice you got a little hitch and you get along and they'll pick up a rock in their, in their, in their hoof, you know, and you pull that rock out and 
Is it common for them to get sore footed or not really? If you're taking it without shoes, I mean, they'll get real sore footed, but uh, Jet does. Jet, Jet, you can't, you know, I can ride him for, I can probably make, you know, two days, you know, riding 12 to 15 miles in rough country and, and he'll be all right. But that third day, he'll be short. He'll, I call it short. They'll be short stepping. He'll be so sore footed. They just yes. kind of, okay. Yeah. And Agnes, I haven't noticed it with her. I'm going to ride her again this year just as much as I can without shoes and see how she does. Mm -hmm. And and there's lots of guys that just put shoes on the front feet of their mules, and they'll leave their back feet, you know, bare. And uh, they – I think there's probably two reasons for it. Maybe the mule's not easy to shoe, and and their front feet are easier, and their back feet are harder, and, and yeah – and also for traction, for grip, I call it, and uh, they they get more grip gotcha. with the without any shoes. But you can take, and I've never done it. Every year I say I'm going to do it because you get sometimes up on that slick rock and stuff, and 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 you got shoes on them. They they don't have as much traction, and probably should put borium on their shoes. Hmm. You, you, uh, you can just with an acetylene torch, you can put some borium on. It's their just shoes. a grip additive. It's like a hardener, and it and it'll. Uh, and it gives them more grip, and it, and it extends the life of your shoes. Interesting. I've pulled shoes off my off jet before when I was hunting hard up there where they were just paper thin. Whoa! Just wore them out, you know. That, and that would be his hoof. I mean, yeah, that's incredible. That these are. I, I'm learning as much as the listeners <laughs> are. I don't know any of this stuff, you know. Oh, okay. uh, last question. I two last questions. I like yeah. to try to keep these segments as short as I can because I love to ask a million questions. But what? If you could give advice to a young mule hunter coming into it on picking a good mule and just anything I may have missed over, if you're just like, oh, you know, this is something you need to watch out for, picking a... Well, yeah, I think one of the old sayings is that a mule shouldn't be born until he's 10 years old, which, you know, you if you're just starting out, you you need to get an older mule, one that's been there and done it, and and because a mule's longevity, their useful life is longer than horses. How long is their useful life? I mean, Jet's 28, 29 years old, and I still pack him. But I don't pack him heavy. I don't ride him anymore, but I don't pack him heavy. Wow. It's hard to leave him. He meets me at the gate. He yeah, still no, no. I'm just saying go, that's so. incredible. Yeah, so I 28. pack him light. Yeah. Wow. He's getting gray on his head and everything, but he still... That's incredible. Gets around, you know, and he... Yeah. I, I'm, we were talking earlier about whether he liked to go or not. I don't know if he likes to go, but I don't think he likes to be left Yeah, either. yeah. And, you know, I, I don't. I don't know. That's a yeah, I like that. That's but a, I would I I think you know I would find a mule from a reputable person that is is has some age on them, has been used uh, the way you're going to use them. I mean, don't find one that's just a ditch bank mule that I don't want to say the wrong thing that someone has just you know rode down the ditch bank for a couple miles every now and then and said oh yeah. this is a good mule you, you know, want a hard hunting mule that's get been one there that's done that. been up through the hills been rode off by itself a lot of them get herd herd bound you know or herd sour or whatever ride off by itself and 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 we'll travel and make sure you get one safe you know that's gonna, not going to hurt you uh that's one of my prerequisites is is having a safe mule because i hunt by myself how do you know that how do you know when you're buying a mule if it's a safe one or not because I agree. Well, with that's you. why you got to get get it from a reputable person. Gotcha. And what's a cost? Because that's another thing too. And you've got to ride that. I mean, you you can't be scared. You because that if you're scared, they pick up on that. Sure. 
and 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 they if you if if you're riding out through there and you're scared of that mule he don't know that you're scared of him he thinks you're just scared so he's going to be scared too and he's liable to be stupid never would have thought of that yeah they pick up on your and they're just what's going on like so you get i rode a mule matter of fact is the first mule i ever hunted on james morris he he said why don't you take this mule see i'd never been around mules i rode horses all my life and competed on horses and at a high level and uh, broke horses. Uh, I mean, we had a regular workhouse out there on the ranch. And and uh, uh, Mr. Hyatt had told me when he seen, I was hunting on his ranch, and he said, you know the way you hunt? And I was riding a really, really nice roping gelding. Matter of fact, I sold him for a ton of money. And he, he was out there, and I was, you know, busting rock on that nice horse. And he said, why don't you, he said, the way you hunt, he said, you really should think about getting a mule. And he said, get a good mule. Don't mess around. And he said, find a good mule. He said, so James Morris I had a mule out there, and I said, what about that mule? He said, oh, take him and ride him if you want to. And I took him and rode him, and I rode him for about a week. And that mule, that mule, uh, I could tell if he got you in a jam, he was going to take advantage of you. You know, if you got if you if you got bowed out the over the front end or or whatever on him, or if you know something happened and you were half asleep on him and slop jarring or whatever, he's going to get out from under you. So you know he's just one of those mules that you rode him the whole time. You kept you, you couldn't trust him at all. Yeah, you, you paid attention to him, and yeah. he never did anything to me. I rode him pretty hard for a week there, and uh, he never did anything to me. But you could tell by looking at his eye, he was just waiting for the opportunity. And uh, when I got back to his, to James, I took him back to James's and James's boy come out and he looked at me and he said, well, he said, you, he said, you bringing that mule back? And I said, yeah. He said, he threw you, didn't he? I said, no, he never did throw me. He said, that mule's thrown everybody who's rode him. And I said, no, he never threw me. I said, but I never gave him a chance either. I mean, I rode, I sat right in the middle of him yeah. the whole time. That's the difference between you as a super advanced horseman and, and like me. If I was to pick a mule, how do you pick one that's safe? You know what yeah. I mean? I'd pick an old one for sure. Yeah. And and one that, you know, I'd go to someone who, let me ask you this. What's a reasonable cost for a really good old mule? Oh, my gosh. That's a hard question. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's an impossible question. That's a hard question because the the price of mules have gone absolutely bananas in the last few years. Time for donkeys. We used to, <laughs> we used to, I used to tell everybody, man, if I couldn't buy a good mule for $1,500, I didn't want a mule. And because it, it, you could get them out down here, you could get them out of Mexico. And if they live through that program, they put them through in Mexico. They're usually a pretty good mule. But uh, I don't know. You know, I, I've seen, I sold a mule. I sold uh, uh, that. I had a sorrel mule, flax and mane and tail. Rode around like a horse. I mean, catcher lead, stop, back up, give. Wasn't that good in the rocks. Was a little bit uh, uh, sour. Didn't, didn't you know, would get you in a tough spot and try to quit you, and you had to get after and make her do it. But if I was going to rope on a mule or anything, she would have been the mule I'd, I'd have roped on. Mm-hmm. She rode around nice and real pretty mule. You didn't have to wear a britchin, which a britchin is what holds your saddle back cuz mules don't have much for withers huh. and the way they're made your your saddle will slide forward. So you didn't and she had a big set of withers on her and so you didn't have to wear a britchin on her. And uh I sold her for 4000 and I thought I was cutting a big hog in the hind end. And uh I was offered $5000 before I delivered her. I delivered to a guy in Nevada. He met me in Nevada, a friend of mine. 
And uh, I called him up. I said, hey, I said, uh, I was offered $5,000 for this mule, but I know I already told you that I'd sell her to you for 4000 I said, I'll split the extra $1,000 with you. <laughs> and I said, I'll give you $500, and I'll keep 500 and I won't have to make that trip up there. He said, no, I want that mule. So, yeah. And then I had a friend of mine that's a big, he's a, he's a big-time lion hunter, catches as many lions in the dirt as anybody around. And he rides a lot of mules and sells mules. And, and he told me, shoot, he said, you could have got $8,000 for that mule. So it's definitely not, um, yeah, this segment's going and that's the thing. I, I always try to keep them under 25 minutes, but I'm going to ask you this and I don't care. <laughs> We're going to roll with it. <laughs> Break down the advantages, disadvantages of owning the mule versus riding a buggy. What, what does the mule bring to the table besides the obvious, which is like, you know, that ro that romance we was talking about. That is that it, you know, there's just, I, I, I tell you a lot. What happens is you're out in the buggy. You can only go so many places i mean of course you're not supposed to travel off the little two tracks that's on the existing roads yeah, yeah. and uh you'll see a you know you'll see a place that you want to go check a big saddle or something and you've got to get out and hike up through there and then and on a mule you it doesn't bother you you just get go yeah just pointer and go and then when you're on foot you think man do i is, is it really necessary for me to walk all the way up to the top of that saddle move those dogs up there is it worth it versus is it worth it to to have to go through all the expense of owning horses or mules to have that kind of mobility or do you because like a lot of guys i talk to are like no way they're like i prefer mm -hmm. to just buggy and walk get as mm -hmm. close as you can in the buggy and just walk to the dogs i think it depends where you hunt at yeah uh, where okay. there's there's a lot of places i went up to nevada and hunted up there and, and uh Shoot, there's little two-track roads everywhere. That's how it was in Canada. Yeah, yeah. little two-track roads everywhere. So those, a lot of those guys, you know, and, and I got one in my buggy. I got one of those Garmin, what do you call them, the, active tracks? Those drive what? tracks? Drive tracks, there yeah. you go. Those I got one. sick. I got one mounted in my buggy, and I can sit there and, and see where the dogs are going. And and from what I take it, there's a lot of guys up there, you know, they'll put their dogs down on a track and – they sit there and listen to them and they look at the screen and they watch the dogs go over and they say, Oh man, there's a, they're heading towards old so-and-so there's a, that logging road that goes up through there and they go move on around and go up that logging road. And I mean, that I, it's sure, all, it's sure. all whatever you want. Out I, of it, I would you know? want to be with them like you are. Yeah. I like to be right there with them. I like to see what, and like you said, it's all about the terrain. You can't do that in Canada. Yeah. You can't. You couldn't no. ride a horse there if you wanted to. It's, Too brushy. It's horrible. Yeah. The windfall on the ground is a, like between three and ten feet deep. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. You can't even see the ground. Yeah. Most of the places we walk to, you can't even see the ground. Yeah. Well, that's like up in the Black Range up there in places. Those they haven't worked those trails. If they work the trails, that would be a super place to lion hunt because there's old trails. If you get the old maps out, there's trails all over that country where you could – it would be similar to hunting with a buggy – because you, you probably wouldn't be able to stay with the dogs all the time, but you could ride, you could hit the trails and intercept them or go wherever they were going. Yeah. And uh, but shoot, the 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 thorny locust and everything's so bad up there now you can't even get. Needs around a good on fire. Them. Well, that's what caused it though. Well, that's, yeah. When the fire went through there, the thorny locust is what came. They're back a pioneer. Up. Yeah, I mean they're the, the those herbaceous spiky plants are the pioneers that come back. So well, okay. I mean, yeah, it, that's the problem, right? Would you call them spacious spiky plants? Herbaceous. 
herbaceous. Yeah, so like a for, like forb like. So like forbs are like weeds basically. It's a weed, yeah. yeah but yeah. it gets six right. seven foot tall. Yeah, so they are the ones that pioneer species. They're the ones that always come back in those destroyed areas. Pioneer. Like goat heads, how they how come long, back. How long do they last? Well, it depends, right? So like it depends on the rainfall, it depends when those conifers start coming back to choke them out because they they oh, shade them out. It's going to be 50 years. Yeah. I mean, we're looking at a scale of, you know, they're saying well, they're not when I say they're saying I'm it depends on the precipitation, the nutrients in the soil, but it could take anywhere from a hundred to a thousand years for those forests to recover after a brutal crown fire where they, it burns the whole tops of the trees and everything, turns mm-hmm. it into a hellscape. Oh, yeah. It can take a thousand years to recover in some places. Dang it. Oh, yeah. We're done. No, I'm not going to be around. <laughs> yeah, no. We got to think in geologic times. So. But I wish the Forest Service would at least, at least maintain trails. Yeah. I mean, they talk about all the unemployment and all the welfare and all that I'm crap. Why don't they get out there and That's what the Civilian Conservation Corps used to be all about. Oh, yeah. And maintain those trails. Yeah. So, so we can use them. I agree. Oh, well. Brett, thanks for ask, answering all my mule questions. I, oh, thank you. I, you know. You I, and I just made it almost two hours fly right by. Wow. That's crazy. I, is it? Me and you talked five that's hours crazy. last time. Well, I know. We didn't record any of it. I, I was like, well, we were just blabbing about desert BS anyway. This was a lot more interesting for the for other people to hear, I think. Yeah. Okay. So uh, if there's anything else you'd like to add for the mule stuff, if not. Uh, yeah. No. I, you know, I, I, I have my YouTube stuff, so I'll plug it. Please. I've, I've got the Born 100 Years Too Late, which is going to be more about mules and traveling through the wilderness and packing and stuff like that. I've always done all my hunting and everything on there, but I'm going to, I've got another YouTube channel that I started just for the dogs and the more of the hunting type stuff that, uh, like I said, I like to make videos. I have no idea. I'm a 60 year old YouTuber, which is kind of a strange thing. Well, you've done a great job and you've done well for yourself. I, mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy sharing the real deal, you know, or what I call the real deal, you know, how hard it is. Yeah, and that's what I really appreciate about it. Yeah, it's not just, you know. Metal music playing and dudes walking to trees. And like, somebody shooting something out of a tree. Yeah. yeah that's kind of the, the. But you and I are both weird desert people that like to just be I know. There. <laughs> I know. I, uh, that's what I got, so that's what I use. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Thank you All so right. much. Thank you, Seth. I appreciate it. How many times do you hound doggers catch yourself thinking about an awesome hunt you had or retelling this great story with family and friends around the dinner table and all you have to remember that moment is some terrible cell phone picture or worse, no picture at all? Well, Houndsman XP has partnered with Rough Cut Company to help solve your problem and make beautiful pieces of art to remember for all time your experiences in the field. Rough Cut Company is an American-owned and American-made business in Wisconsin that specializes in custom, unique photo engravings on hardwood that are framed to any picture you want. They also do customizable antler dog chews and even beautiful, unique antler rings from their own red deer in Wisconsin. Rough Cut Company can do pretty much anything you ask. Their customer service is second to none. Give them a look at roughcutcompany.com. And when you check out, make sure you check out with HXP 10% off to get a discount on your final purchase. Check them out, you guys, and support people that support Houndsmen and help keep us in the field and remembering those times forever. Well, I hope everyone liked it. Uh, I really enjoy sitting down with Mr. Vaughn. He and I can spend literally hours going on and just chatting about everything really we uh we're both pretty exuberant guys 
and uh, we both have a lot in common and it, it really makes a good time. I will be riding with him this fall. He's got a spare mule for me. And uh, the last, Ooh. yeah, yeah. So the last few years, you know, he's invited me. He's such a nice guy and I really want to go, but it was hard for me to pull away from my own dogs, you know, and every weekend I just want to run my dogs. But honestly, I've been enjoying exploring very much and the terrain and the country that Brett is hunting, I'm very familiar with, but I want to explore the different hunting and, you know, patrons, everyone, uh, patrons are getting extra bonus material from that conversation. It was two hours long. And uh, there are tailgate talks that precede the segment you just heard for over an hour. So uh, if you want to check out those talks, they're on our Patreon page. You guys, we talked about hunting mountain lions. We talked about mountain lions themselves, the desert, speed dogs, coyote races, calling coyotes in for greyhounds, all kinds of cool stuff that Brett and I have done with speed dogs. And then also with uh, his dry ground pack, his adventures, cool people he's known, all kinds of stuff, guys, two hours worth of of awesome conversation. And uh, I had to push the stop button because me and him can just go for an eternity. (laughs) I said, we got to have a part like five, you know what I mean? (laughs) I know. I had a fun time hunting with both of you when we went out doing river rat stuff along the Rio Grande. Yep. Yep. So I'm glad you're going to get out hunting with him. Maybe he'll come in the buggy with you. I don't know. Yeah. So um, right where you and I were hunting with him, not about about a hundred yards up the river. He caught a lion right there recently. No way. Okay, great. Patrons, uh, patrons get to hear that, uh, hear all about what Mm -hmm. happened. It was, it was crazy. He uh, he had some cool video of it too um, on his channel. So check it out. You guys, Brett's a cool dude. So I've been, uh, I've been thinking about these animals and, and there will be a, there will be a second episode that's like this in the future, you guys, because there's still some other animals that hunt alongside hounds that I want to explore more. Uh, but our next segment is with my friend Joshua, and he is a falconer. He hunts with a red tail hawk. And when you think hawks, the first thing I always think is, how do you train those flying dinosaurs? How do you get something from the wild that hates you? And then all of a sudden now is working for you. So I broke it down with Josh. I, from the moment he's captured to the moment he's catching game for you, how the heck do you make that work? So let's roll right into it. Enjoy everyone. Joshua Poole, I can hear you. We meet again. Yeah, here we go. Uh, I do quite a bit of Zoom through work, so that background is just my background. I actually don't have a, uh, I actually don't have a light in this room. So if I get like gradually darker, where you can't even see me, that may be why. Is this thing going to be shown in video anywhere? Or is it just no, the recording? No, no. Okay. If it was shown in video, dude. No one would watch this show because you'd have to look at my ugly mug the whole time. So. <laughs> same, same, same here. Yeah. Well, I don't think the video works unless if you're, it's like Joe Rogan style where they're together <laughs> and you're watching them both, you know? Yeah. But, that works yeah. good if we're all in the same room, which yeah. you're clearly in San Francisco right now. Yeah. So that's a, like a going joke with, I'm an investment advisor and that's a going joke with work. It's like, I just, this is the best of the zoom backgrounds that I've got. And uh, in my opinion, and it's just the one that I started using. So everybody thinks I got the, 
Golden Gate Bridge behind me. Just run with it, son. Just yeah. run with it. Hey, yeah. we had a we had an error last time, everybody. I had a great recording with Josh. We were having a great time. It was long and awesome. And guess what happened? For some reason, it didn't save Josh. It only saved my stupid voice. So here we are, round two. We're going to try it again. And for this episode, we're going to be breaking down the animals that help houndsmen succeed. And I just couldn't stop thinking about avian predators, birds, hunting with birds. And for this segment, I really wanted to focus on the main question most people have when they think about hunting with birds. How the heck do you train them? So I'm going to let you introduce yourself, brother. Give us a quick background to uh, what you do and uh, who you are and how long you've been flying and hunting with dogs and take it away, brother. All right. Yeah. So my name is Joshua Poole. I'm in nor- Northern Oklahoma, just North of Tulsa. Uh, my background really is it's first it's rodeo. Uh, I come from cowboy culture and things like that. Then I, I got into terriers. So digging, digging into terriers all at the same time I got into digging into terriers, bulldogs, uh, which led into running uh, hogs and, uh, and then I've interned with a company out of Tulsa called Torchlight Canine for a couple, for a few years. I don't do that anymore, but just on training police dogs. So for detection, uh, apprehension, bite work, things like that, uh, had a really good mentor for that. And we even went around the country uh, doing what's called high-risk deployment seminars, teaching uh, cops and, and their and their canines, uh, putting them through scenarios, uh, testing them and their dogs and giving them feedback, things like that. Sweet. And that, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I guess it'd be through my, one of my buddies that runs hog dogs. He also runs beagles. He runs beagles, uh, really nice beagles. He trials them and stuff. And one day he messaged me about uh, somebody coming out to fly Harris Hawks on rabbits over his beagles. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to see that. So yeah. I went out there <laughs> And there was two different guys there. Uh, they were both flying. Uh, there's two, I guess there was three different Harris Hawks, kind of in the falconry world. We kind of call that a, I guess a, you call that a gang bang basically, but it, it's just, it's just a lot of Hawks and a lot of dogs running rabbits, but they, I think they killed like seven of them. Uh, Harris Hawks but, uh, are social carnivores, correct? They yeah, are they a social are. bird. Yeah. yeah. That's and cool. So people, <laughs> people are, they, it is cool. And people are inclined to uh, fly them in what, what's called a cast. So multiple birds at a time. Uh, I think, I think two's, two's a pretty co- cool number, but anyways, I saw, uh, <clears throat> I saw that and I thought it was cool. So uh, it wasn't my first, it, was, it wasn't all in, you know, I had all these irons in the fire between, I was still rodeoing at the time. I, I had the Patterdale Terriers that I was running free cast in the woods. I even had uh, the a bulldog and a stag hound at one point that I was free casting together in the woods and they'd get into all kinds of trouble. Together. Yeah. And, Those uh, dudes are legendary for getting into trouble. <laughs> yeah. So they, they get into all kinds of trouble together. And so at the time I didn't really have time for falconry, but it just kind of ate at me. And um, I saw some other stuff on social media, other things that you could do with them. The The real thing about falconry is it's not just about, uh, it wasn't, it's not just one thing. There's just so many aspects and avenues that you can go down with falconry. There's different ways to fly them. You can fly flat falcons from a pitch. 
uh, up in the air on, on quarry that you flush you can fly uh like red tails and harris hawks out of trees uh on rabbits and squirrels you can fly you can fly uh what's called a sipiters, which would be like your cooper socks your goss hawks your sharp shins off the fist and then That's there's badass. even like <laughs> yeah on uh on all sorts of things uh and then there's even what's called a ringing flight where you turn like a merlin loose on a flock of starlings and it'll ring them up in the air push them up and then once they bail out it'll cut through the middle of them and and take on out so that's, There's just so many, so many different so ways red. to do it. <laughs> yeah, this is something I really need to. I know a, a man named Paul Domsky. He's actually been on the show before. Uh, he's one of the first people I interviewed for Houndsman XP. Supremely interesting man, and uh, he flies. He has a goshawk and um, a peregrine falcon, I believe. Nice. It's Paul, some kind of uh, Paul Domsky. He runs sighthounds oh, yeah. too, doesn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's how I like got to know him well you know we hunt together nice. and uh we have a good time but i'm gonna go out with him this fall i really want to hunt ducks with his falcon i think that'll be nice. really cool to see there's so, some guys around me that they fly in what's called a tears what we call tearsel hybrid so a tearsel if you hear me talk about a tearsel it'll be a male of any raptor species and the reason why they're called a tearsel is because they're a tearsel in some language i can't tell you which one it stands for a third and so the males are a third the size smaller than the females hmm. so these guys are flying tearsel hybrids they're a hybrid between a jeer falcon and a peregrine falcon flying them on uh grouse flying them on on things like that chickens but uh not all the time primarily flying them on ducks from 900 to 1000 foot pitches. That's I probably nice. saw over <laughs> I probably saw over 70 ducks get knocked out of the sky uh, this past winter. Uh, if you're listening to this and not thinking this is badass, you got to go look in the mirror and have a talk with yourself. <laughs> this is so sick. So, we got to this for this segment, I really want to focus on the the details of how this all happens. This this whole thing is about the animals that support us and I just really I have no idea how you train a bird. So, why don't you break it down from we all a lot of people know, especially when we listen to Paul talk that they're caught from the wild, you can have them imprinted on you as young, or you can catch them from the wild, which is totally sustainable and legal and actually helps the falcon and hawk population by doing this. Break it down. After you catch them. I'm just going to give you the floor. What happens after you catch them? How do you even get them to not just fly away? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah so what you're mainly talking about is a passage passage bird like, like you said you can take them from the nest and there, there's a whole imprinting process and this it's a totally different ball game that i'm not gonna go into as far as imprinting uh but wild take is a thing in america we have that uh the nice thing about it what you said is true it is sustainable and we're only allowed to take what's called a passage bird which means it's it's a bird of the year it's a bird that's been hatched that year. And the reason for that is, is because after they make it through their first winter, then they're, they're part of the breeding population. And another thing is, is a, a bird, a baby bird going into its first winter. I mean, it's hard to make a living out there and they've got, uh, I don't know what the number exact number is, but say like a red tail hawk uh, has probably like an 85 to 90% chance of not making it through its first winter. So whether that I've flown two red tails and I've flown a kestrel, and uh both of those both all three of those had almost zero chance of or almost 90 percent chance of not making it through their first winter so i take them out 
of, of the wild, train them. They're dewormed, deliced, and uh, by the time I turn them back loose, it comes springtime, which I don't have to, but I, I've I've always chosen to turn them back loose. Then they're stronger and more fit than a a uh, bird that made it through its the winter naturally. But anyways, I'm rambling about that. No, no, this is exactly right. And that's important to mention. And I think everyone needs to remember it's a tough life for a predator in the wild. And if he fails hunting with you, well, you'll still feed him and he'll get another chance. So it's very helpful for them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I'll walk you through what, how it basically went with my red tail. Uh, It was pretty similar, real similar with the Kestrel. Uh, I plan on flying a Cooper's Hawk this fall and it'll be, it'll be pretty similar with that too. So basically once I, I, I trapped the red tail, once I, I got them off the trap, uh, I put a hood on them and that's just to, uh, basically a, a huge percentage of their brain is, is sight is dedicated to sight. So once you shut that down, you, you can literally put a hood on a red tail where they can't see one that's just been taken out of the wild and then they'll stand on your hand. Cause they don't, they don't have any other thing that they can do mm-hmm. and they're they're prone to sit still in times like that, that rather than just freaking out and yep. uh anyways so I, I get a hood on them and i get them home i, I get jess's or anklets the things that go on their legs i get those cut out and, and put on or if I, I might have some already pre-cut but anyways so I get them like a up. leash basically yeah yeah okay exactly and i, I get them rigged up with that and then it depends on what type of bird I got. You know, a red tail is a big bird. So weight management is a thing. I mean, I've got to get these birds to where they have, there's some sense of uh, hunger, uh, not starvation or anything like that, but they, they got to be hungry to, to be cooperative. Yeah. It makes sense. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like a kestrel is so small that if you let them sit for too long without eating, they could be in big trouble. But basically the way I did it with the red tail is I, I just set them, didn't mess with them. I might let them sit on my hand and, and, and do that, but he can't see anything. And then once his uh, mutes, which is a fancy word for saying crap, once that turns green, I know he's empty. And so that's the first, my first session and I'll have food ready. Usually I'll have forceps or, or something long that I can put a piece of like a tidbit of food up up to the corner of his mouth and try to get him to eat it and I'm, I'm doing this in a darkened room where he can barely even see me i mean barely at all and uh as i'm doing that as I, as i'm doing that once i get a meeting um i'm gradually lowering the forceps down more and uh down lower because the whole goal is to get him eaten off the fist i mean that's a that's the big that's the goal at the time and uh, I'm lowering him down just incrementally until he's eaten off the fist. And if, if for some reason the bird doesn't want to eat or doesn't want to, doesn't want to cooperate sessions over. So I'll put the hood back on. I'm not going to prolong it or anything. Uh, I will say coming from uh, the, the dog world, like I, I've experienced with say positive reinforcement training with puppies, uh, free shaping and all that stuff. Uh a lot of times higher repetitions are better for a pup, like a lot of little short sessions throughout the day. And I actually thought that was the case with the birds. And I, I ran in, one of my mentors said, not really. I mean, they need, they, the more times it, you can basically starve a bird to death 
feeding it every two hours and trying to work it because mm-hmm. that psychological hunger isn't there. So like one big thing I did with my kestrels, I was worried to death about not it not getting to eat enough. So I'd try to work it like three or four times a day. And it was, it was getting hungrier because I'd cut it off whenever it wouldn't cooperate. I'd say, okay, session's over. But then I'd try again like a few hours later rather than just letting the bird sit. And, and it may Relax. not even lose, yeah. it can lose more weight but getting fed incrementally all the way down than it does in like a 24 hour period in that whole, it could even be at the same weight in 24 hours and it might even be hungrier because it's a psychological thing, mm-hmm. but I'm getting a little bit too much in the weeds here, but basically if the bird's not cooperating sessions over, we're going to put the hood on. They're not that smart. I'm going to take the hood off 15 minutes later. They're not going to connect it with anything. And I'm going to feed them up to whatever I want them to be the next day, probably a little bit lower. And we'll try again. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. So once I get them eaten off the fist, then uh, as this is happening, the lights are getting brighter and uh, I'll put them on a perch uh, at, at some point after they eaten on the fist and the lights are brighter. And the first step is, is to get the bird to step up on the fist. So what I'll do is I'll have like a, a, a starling leg or a quail leg if I've got quail and uh, I'll hold it up there and the bird will take a bite and I won't let go. And the bird will want to naturally put its foot on it to, mm. uh, to stabilize it. And then I'll just kind of pick it up. So the bird learns to step up on the fist like that. Some people will put a bird on like a sawhorse or a flat board and get them like to walk towards them. Cause the whole goal that we're doing now is trying to get them to jump to the fist. And so these are all preliminary steps, but after they're stepping up on your foot, then you're just holding it far enough away where they can't do that. They They've have to hop up. over. They've yeah. got to hop over at some point. And a lot of people, uh, me and myself included, it's hard not to say that they're, they're just in, they'll, they'll lean out and they'll almost fall and they'll catch themselves and, and they might still get the piece of tidbit that you got on your glove. A lot of people stay at that part for a long time and they won't just say, okay, you've got, they think, oh, they'll, they'll pull it out and the bird won't hop and then they'll put their fist closer. And that's whenever you start teaching the bird that it can dictate what you do. Basically. Ah. so once you once you get the bird hopping to the fist and it's going on it's going well inside then i'll move outside and i'll have a long creance like par, paracord or, or something like that some people use braided mason line uh but i i probably i use pair use paracord with my last bird but um in my front yard i live on 10 acres out in the country i got a big mowed front yard i can do all my crayons work out there and uh i'm just trying to get some distance in between me and the bird get them coming further so 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 once they learn to hop up you're using the same command to get them to come to you and they're leashed up so they can't just fly away right now right yeah yeah Yeah, okay the creance is that long leash a long line basically okay yep yep and a lot of times a lot of people will there's some falconers that will say, once you turn around, they're already coming to you. They're ready. And I won't, I won't take that. Like if my bird, if I, if I, if my bird comes to me, especially my red tails, at least if my birds come to me and I didn't call them, I'm not feeding them. They got to, mm-hmm. and that's just something that I think is important. That's something that my mentor, uh, Daniel Murray ha- has me do. Uh, if they're coming to me, uh, they don't get fed unless if I whistle at them basically, but um, makes sense. As, as I'm doing this, I'll introduce what's called the lure. Uh, the lure can be anything. I like it to be with, at least with the red tails and probably with the Cooper's hawk and, and uh, 
most every bird I fly, it's going to be big, heavy, something they're not going to, they can't move around a lot with. And uh, my first introduction to the lure is going to be the, the bird sitting out. First, I should explain what the use of the lure is for. I'm going to use the lure, at least with the last birds that I've, I've flown as a trade-off. So whenever a bird gets a hold of a of something, they're predisposed to not want to turn loose of it. You know, they're they're not real fond of the idea of giving up what they caught <laughs> yeah, yeah. in the wild. The reason is is because they've been robbed their whole life. Whether it's especially a passage bird, whether it's in the nest, whether it's from other predators or other predators out in the wild from the point of leaving the nest till I've got them. And uh they they don't want to give it up. So I use it for the trade off. Uh, I also use it if they're way, way you can swing the lure and it's just more visual and they're going to be more inclined to come to the lure because it's farther away from you. Cause at the end of the, the day, they don't, they don't like you, you know, and they <laughs> just as soon eat away from you as have to come to you. So that lure is kind of just a way to get them, get it, get it away from you. So there's that. It's funny that they don't figure out that they can just eat somewhere else. They've, they've like learned that you are the only one that feeds them. And they're like, I got to come back if I want to eat. It's well, they're opportun- they're opportunistic, you know, so they want that. That's the goal. If you've done it right, they figured that out. I mean, and it gets harder with other thing like this is a tangent, but you try to fly, you try to fly, say, a, a, a wild trap peregrine from a pitch on places where there's a lot of catch and they're absolutely going to go try to, or a lot of, uh, by catch, I mean, uh, a lot of other things you don't want them chasing like say metal arcs flying around or, or something uh-huh. that they're just going to go chase not not the actual core you're chasing so it can be really tough to get especially like a, a long a long wing which is a falcon that's flying from a pitch once they're up there 500 700 900 feet they can see a long ways so they can see every barn pigeon every everything that's out there so they're seeing it can a lot be here hard. or not yeah yeah they it can be hard to keep those birds from going and trying to catch something but anyways Getting back to it, the way I introduce the lure is the bird's sitting on a perch outside, tethered to the perch, and I just walk up and throw the lure out. First introduction with it, it'll be what's called garnish. That means it'll have a big flashy piece of meat on it that's zip tied hard to it so they can't pull it off of there. And the bird will look down there and jump, and I just walk off and I'll leave them alone. And that'll be my the introduction to the lure. After they get done, they'll get back on their perch and I'll go and collect them and, and get the lure. But anyways, after I've done that a couple of times and they know what it is, as I'm doing those creant sessions outside, uh, I'll pull the lure out of my bag and call them to it to end the session. So uh, Got I'll throw it. it out there. And so the what I did what my what my sponsor had me do that uh that all tied into this and tied into the trade-off especially for the red tail and i'll probably do something similar with the cooper's hawk that i'm going to fly this fall but i took a a dog dummy just like one of those long uh retrieving dummies and i wrapped it in rabbit fur and i put it on a string and that Mm -hmm. bird's already used to seeing the lure come out of my bag what I would do is whenever we were doing those creant sessions out there, I'd pull it out of my bag and I'd yell my game call, which is what I'm going to yell whenever the, whenever the bird see, whenever there's game in the field. So like, Hey, 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 or some people yell, ho, 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 whatever you want to call it. You could yell, yodel, 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 or something like that. Yeah. That's what they yelled in like, uh, 
War and Peace, uh, whenever they were doing the wolf hunt with the side hounds. Was, you, 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 you. But anyways, you got to hear my that. Indian yell. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that. But uh, anyways, I just yell, hey, 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 pull the rabbit dummy out. And the, the bird is used to seeing the lure. And this has fur on it. So more than likely, they're going to come. And you're dragging it. And they hit that thing. And they got a hold of it. And they're squeezing it. And they're like, oh, I know this is something. And it's not right so they're like footing around like they may pluck at it a little bit and uh and pretty soon they figure out there's no meat there and once they open up their they have a real disconnect from their brain to their feet so you really got to pay attention to their to their feet and uh once they open up their feet on that rabbit dummy and you can see they're not uh still clenching it I'll pull out the lure and it's already got that garnish. They know what that is and it's already like plucked. It looks good. They're like, okay, heck yeah. And they leave that rabbit dummy for the Ah. lure. And then after they're done on the lure, and I didn't tell you this, but after they're done on the lure, uh, I wait for the same thing. After they get done eating, I wait till they, they, they shuffle their feet, their feet are open. And then they, then I offer them something on the fist and then they leave the lure and they fly up to the fist and that, then I put everything up. So after I do that several times with the rabbit dummy, uh, what all that it mat all that matters now, hopefully the bird's coming to you immediately on the creance. It's hitting the rabbit dummy hard. It's trading off on the lure. Then you go to a field and you make sure that you can put a, you can put a rabbit under your bird. I mean, now, I'm going to stop there. this real quick. I'm going to stop you yeah. real quick. This is what I want to know. So now you're taking him out into the field. You feel like he's ready. How long did this take from the moment you got him home and had the hood on the dark room to you're good off the creance and you're ready to go out into the field and turn him loose? How long does this take? Um, Honestly, it, it should take about, I mean, I'm not going to say it should take, I'm not going to make a that kind of statement, but it can take anywhere from 10 days to three weeks or longer, what? but yeah. But That's yeah, I think fast. most of mine were within two, two weeks. So about 14 days to two uh, weeks, two to two and a half weeks. That's but yeah. crazy. Okay. I, anyone listening, I was not expecting that. That is crazy. So they learned yeah. pretty fast. Actually. That's something that most people uh, are surprised by. You're not I was imagining like one. six months. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I, I could, I wouldn't, I'd be lying if I said that I, I, I thought the same thing. Uh, I thought it would be way more than it was but that's crazy oh wow so So, okay two weeks later we're out getting ready to hunt (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean two to three weeks yeah yeah some people can have them on yeah it's a short amount of time and it goes by quick well honestly it doesn't feel like it goes by quick but it it does go by quick um yeah as as far as as that first hunt goes (laughs) i mean that's the one that matters right because you're talking about how do you get them to figure out that you're the one that that matters so i'm out there uh that whole time you know i might work them at, at a certain time of day at the, the same time i'm out scouting fields i know where i can go and i can flush a rabbit immediately and uh and so that's what i do uh, me and my uh sponsor he's also my buddy uh daniel murray we went out and we flushed a rat put the bird up in the tree uh called him to the fist once just to be like, Hey, we're still doing this. I'm still here. And then we were planning on like a five minute session. If, if that bird, if we don't flush wow. a rabbit, if we don't flush a rabbit within five to six minutes, five to 10 minutes. And, and if we move, even, even if we do flush a rabbit, if I move somewhere and that bird follows me 
from a tree, I'm reinforcing that immediately with the mm. with the rat mm-hmm. with the rabbit dummy that I've already got in my bag, and then the the lure after that. Fortunately, we did flush a rabbit. We actually did several flushes and uh, ended up catching one on its first on its nice. first uh, perfect. Uh, yep. And uh, after the after it catches one, this is just the way I did it. A lot of people will say, uh, "Well, there's there's different ways to do the trade off." You know, the, I'm doing the one on the lure. Some people they trade off on the fish. Some people try to take like a rag and cover up the rabbit while you're you've got your fist with food on it above that. And then just kind of like a out of sight, out of mind thing. But uh-huh. with the way that I did the the trade off and a lot of people will say, so that you don't create a bird that, that doesn't like you to come around whenever it's eating, you want to let them eat, eat on their first 10 kills or whatever. I didn't do any of that. My bird never ate on a single uh, kill. Uh, I'd go in dispatch the rabbit humanely i had a little string that i'd tied to its back leg and then i stuck a screwdriver on the ground so that he couldn't fly off with it and then i'd get out of his way uh the bird would just sit there decompress relax i'm not in there messing with him uh and then he can pluck that's that bird wants to pluck so it, it's pulling at fur and stuff but it's mm-hmm. hard work and yeah. about the time that it, it's plucking and, and uh and seems to be really chilled out. I'm going to pull that lure out, walk up, pull the lure out and throw it in front of him out of reach where he can't drag the rabbit to it. Yeah. And he left the rabbit for the lure and he got to where he would catch something and then pluck. I always get, let him wait, you know, cause if you don't let him wait, let him pluck, let them de- decompress. You can get a bird that'll turn loose to stuff. That's already alive. That's still alive mm-hmm. to try to come to the lure and stuff. So, but that's basically how it went. That's awesome. We ended up catching, I guess, I re- I didn't fly them as long as I could have. I I, uh, I had two bird dogs that I had to get ready. I've been running them all spring, so I quit him early. But we caught uh, 63 or 64 head a game within, a, I don't know how long, uh, probably the end of, I guess it'd be the end of November till uh, late February. So Dang. some people do way more than that, but I was pretty happy with it. So I got a few questions. Okay. Yeah. First of all, um, you said weight management. I'm gonna get into the performance a little bit of this. This is a red tail. We're talking here, weight management. You're weighing this bird on a scale and what are you, you're trying to keep them at that perfect weight. Cause that's what they fly best at yeah. or what that's right. Break that that's down right. a little bit. Um, so basically I'm weighing that bird every day. Uh, that, that's you trained happened. him to stand several, on a little scale or something? Several times a day. Yeah. I mean, some people like train him to hop on that scale and stuff. I just put the bird on the scale. Oh, usually okay. the bird is, usually the bird's hooded uh, still whenever I put it on the scale. So I don't have to worry about it. He'll just stand off. there. Yep. Yeah. I'll just stand in there. And then uh, I'm weighing him in grams. And uh, so say that I go hunting, uh, let's say I go hunting Saturday morning and uh and we ca- I catch a, I already know Saturday morning. Uh, I know about what I need to feed him to have him at the weight I want him at the next time I fly him. Be that if I hunt him Saturday morning, be that Saturday evening or most likely Sunday morning, or even if it's Sunday evening. So I kind of know what my schedule is. Let's say that I've, I've, instead of, if I fly Saturday morning, instead of, uh, instead of flying, if I flew Saturday morning, right. And I knew that on Sunday, instead of flying in the morning, I was going to fly in the evening time. I may feed him extra 
even because mm. I I know what his grams loss per hour is probably going to be, so I can just calculate that. And, wow. and it, a lot of variables go into that: uh, the temperature outside, what what quality of food you're feeding. Uh, I didn't feed. I'm real adamant uh, about feeding. I fed fed nothing but small birds that I shot with a pellet gun. So oh, wow. a red tail yeah. can do fine on like quail and. Uh, yeah they're so opportunistic like, yeah yeah they can do things they can do fine on quail even squirrel and stuff like that but really the other things that i'm wanting to fly just keeping really high quality food in them is uh is a priority and so i just i made that a habit with my red tail even though he probably didn't need it he ate nothing but like uh small birds that i shot with a pellet gun and it, it's really rich uh high calorie food and it's fresh food too it's not yeah. frozen Yep. So would you say overall, this is a pretty high maintenance animal? You know, I, you know, you talk to falconers and they'll say things like falconry's not a hobby. It's a way of life, you know, and just things like, like that. Yeah, yeah. Just like houndsmen. And they'll scare you about if you don't have all this time and stuff, there's a lot to get into it. There's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to, there's a lot that goes into learning about it. But once you get in a routine, with the bird like my like my red tail i mean i wouldn't spend more than outside of like an hour or two of hunting a day i wouldn't spend more than 20 minutes dealing with that bird maybe maybe 30 minutes at the most i guess that's the advantage of them being solitary and they don't really care about you they're just like yeah here's my food like yeah so you can feed them you just make sure you, you know what they weigh they're taken care of you get them out to weather and things like that and and i say that i make that joke about falconry being I mean, I've totally upended my life for for falconry. I've I've set set. I totally changed the way I was gonna make a living. I've I've done a lot to to make falconry what it is. But it doesn't have to be that. You know, there's plenty of people that it's just a, a side thing they do, and, it, yeah. and they do it well still. You know. Yeah, yeah. But I like to go all in. That's why I'm sitting here interviewing yeah, you right now. <laughs> that's what. And I think that there's a, a real, you know, Tyler Sladen, he's been on some podcasts. He's really, really seen what he did with his goshawk was one of the first, was one of the things that made me think, man, there's levels to this stuff. Like there's, there's cool things that you can go and do. There's all sorts of cool things. And he talks about getting people that are already hunters into falconry. You know, a good example mm-hmm. of that is my buddy, Jake Thomas up in Kansas, he just flew his first red tail, but uh, this past season, the thing with Jake is he's he's already a hunter. He's he's born into that. He's been doing it since he could walk, uh, running bird dogs, uh, gun hunting, all that stuff. I mean, he knows about it. He knows about how to go find game, and that's a lot of times falconry draws type types of people that aren't like that. If that makes sense. Yes, it I draws, know too. Honestly, yeah. So it can draw a real a real type of people that, and there's nothing wrong with it. They're great people. And they, a lot of them become outdoorsmen, Uh, but, uh, but people like Jake, you know, all he's got to do is figure out the bird and Mm. he can go find game. He's been doing that since he's a a kid. So that's a cool thing. uh, It is a really diverse community for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like that. And I think that's the future of, of our lifestyle in general is bringing in new blood. 
you know, yeah. breaking the stereotypes. We, yeah. we have so much to cover guys. We, we, we need to make a part two, Josh, because there was so much that you and I covered in our last talk that I want to make into another episode. So, right. but I wanted to cover the training and getting these guys out in the field. So Josh, if there's anything you need to cover brother, now's the time. And, uh, thanks man. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, about getting them out in the field. I don't, I don't know that there's, I kind of walked through the whole, the whole thing, uh, with the, with getting the red tail out in the field, the way that I, I, I plan to fly my Cooper's Hawk, which I, I should throw out a disclaimer that I'm just a, uh, I'm just, I'm a second year. I'm a first year general. I should actually get into to how you get into falconry. Basically, uh, you, the way that it works is you've got to have a, a, uh, a sponsor, someone that will agree to be your mentor for two years. They oversee your training. They oversee, uh, how all that works. And you got, you got to take a 120 question test that at least that's how it was for Oklahoma. I don't know how it is for everywhere else, but that's how it is for Oklahoma. And then you have to build a muse, which is a basically a glorified hawk house. And, uh, after you do that, the game warden has to come out and inspect your facilities. And, uh, and I guess uh, I should just throw out a disclaimer that you're an apprentice for two years, and that's I'm coming to the end of that. So I'm still a baby in falconry. So anything I would say, uh, there might be some falconers out there listening to this, like, what? Look at it, listen to this guy trying to talk about falconry whenever he's only been doing it for two years. But I came to you because you're interesting, and I like yeah. your story, and you're a cool guy. So yeah. you're you know a lot already, and uh, I really <laughs> appreciate it. And I'm really glad you actually brought that up because you can't just like go out and catch one no. and do this. You you need to like go through all the proper channels, do it safe, and you owe right. it to the to the wildlife, to the hawk, and to yourself to make sure that you go through all these channels. So yeah, yeah, Josh. Thank you so much for coming on the Hounds on XP podcast, brother. I really appreciate it. Let's do a round two. There was so much that I also really want everyone to hear about. Your flying, your hunts, your cool stuff, combining with the dogs. There's so much more to talk about. So, But thank you, buddy. I, I really appreciate it. You follow yeah, your hawk, I'll follow my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. And I appreciate, appreciate it, you having me on. We'll see you later. Yes, sir. I wonder if anybody does any falconry in Wisconsin. I need to look into that. New Mexico is huge for falconry, I've learned. And so although Joshua doesn't live in New Mexico, he is planning on coming here because it's amazing. Like we have our own falconry seasons that get to go before gun hunters do for waterfowl and upland game. And the culture oh, is wow. huge. Yeah, yeah. The culture here is huge. So um, I'm going to experience more of that too. Uh, we've had Mr. Paul Domsky on the show. He was one of the first people I interviewed because he's a supremely interesting dude. And uh, he also flies, he flies multiple kinds of birds, hunting multiple kinds of quarry. So he's, uh, and he talked about it in his episode. So uh, he's also obviously a big Saluki hunter like I am. And uh, well, I don't know, we're just jackrabbit crazy idiots. <laughs> well, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Paul's not. So I hope... <laughs> You know, everyone, we have more segments to come uh, next month. I had to cut it off, you guys. I, I don't want these episodes to be three hours long. It's really easy. The biggest problem I'm having with All Mixed Up is making them shorter because I like talking to people. There's so much to talk about. I agree. And there's like, we, we have so many different things that we can cover. Yeah. But yeah. Out, of, out of, a I mean, out of a mule or some type of falcon, what would be your choice? I know. 
Well, Lizzie wanted to be a falconer for a while. Maybe she was kind of thinking about it, just kind of toying with the idea. But that's something you got to go all in on. And um, mm-hmm. in my personal opinion, I, I would rather do the falconry just because horses are crazy dangerous. And I don't mean that in like the I'm afraid of horses way. I've ridden horses a lot in my life. I'm now by no means an equestrian here, but it's just that they are intrinsically an, a dangerous animal to be on and people get messed up riding them even when they're like good horses, you know? And I just feel like my buggy is so much better for what I do. Um, cup holders, tons of space, and I can carry five people and, and you don't, dogs. and you don't have to feed it hay or anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just sitting right out here quiet and uh, not attracting flies, which I find very, uh, very appealing but i do love the idea it's very romantic you know what i mean i just uh i think it's even more romantic to like let a red tail off your fist that's so badass (laughs) it's like medieval i feel like (laughs) and what about you a mule or falcon what would you choose well definitely a mule but i think that's just because of my lifestyle but in all honesty to be real with everybody here that's listening I think I am full up on anything I could ever handle. Like, I don't think I could even add like chickens or goats, you know, to add one more animal to take care of. It would just be too much for me. And I've got to just draw the line. Yeah. I mean, I I feel the same way. (laughs) You know what I would try? Let's hear it. A coon hunting monkey that sports a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in another. Oh my God. (laughs) So there's this Jerry, you've got to listen to it. So there's this Jerry Clower um, comedy story about this coon hunting monkey. And these guys didn't want to hunt with it. And then Jerry and his other friend were like, all right, well, we'll go, we'll go. And the dog treed and the monkey went up there and there was no raccoon. And all of a sudden there's a shot and the dog's dead. And then the owner of the monkey was like, the only thing that monkey hates more than a coon is a lion dog. <laughs> like a slick trained dog. Oh my gosh. So, so could you train an animal to go up there and actually engage a coon? I wonder. I wonder. And also, I mean, with a pistol, I don't think no, a monkey no. with a pistol. No, not but with a gun. I, <laughs> I, I think you could. Like, I, Okay, what if you could train a baboon? Because baboons are freaking crazy. I know. That was the first thing I thought. They could kill a raccoon. Like, that would be a good battle. But I don't think baboons are really trainable. A chimp? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. A chimp? Perhaps. I mean, they're super trainable, but obviously owning a chimp is out of the question. So here's something cool. Oh, okay. Well, I'll wait. (laughs) Um. Do you have anything else to add to your pistol-wielding monkey? Mm, I mean, maybe it could use, like, carry a backpack or something. <laughs> like, Dora the Explorer. I don't... <laughs> but that's that's all I've got. That's it. I just wanted to joke around and say that's the only animal I would add. <laughs> Here's the animal I'd like to hunt with in all seriousness. It sparked my interest when I first started working for Houndsman XP, representing coursing dogs. A fan, an elderly fan, reached out to me from clippings from a Field and Stream magazine, I believe is Field and Stream, from a long time ago, back in the 60s, I believe. 
It's been a long time. And this gentleman hunted in places that I still hunt today with a cheetah. He got two cheetahs. Yes. He got two cheetah brothers from Namibia, brought them back to the States in the late fifties, trained them and hunted pronghorn, jackrabbits and coyotes with them. And he ran them in the same field that I run my Salukis today. So what, he, what would he do once they caught? Would he just like put them on a leash and tie yeah, them up like a, like a dog? dog? Yeah. Yeah. But he was just talking about how, you know, they're not dogs. And when they died, he did not want to do it again. So I believe him, but I still would want to experience it. He said that thing was hell on jackrabbits. And uh, cheetahs are, let's let's be real here, okay? Dogs are, are long distance animals. They're incredible at running long distances, obviously. But Cheetahs are a superior running animal. A dog, when they're running, they're pumping their head quite violently, especially sprinting breeds like greyhounds and whippets. And they actually have trouble like keeping the rabbit sighted in that sprint because their head is literally bobbing super hard. But a cheetah, if you watch slow motion of them running, just like a hare, their head is like super steady, like a gyroscope when they're running. And that spine is just whipping behind and moving but that head is staying very level so they can keep a good eye on their prey when they're chasing it at insane speeds and so if he didn't catch the jack in under 45 seconds he'd give up is what he said in the article but he would catch a lot i mean of if you think about it if you think about it though that makes sense i mean cheetahs have been around and have been yes you know naturally selected for longer than these right. domestic dogs Absolutely. So, and there, a cat is just a better animal to utilize the double suspension gallop because cats are super flexible and dogs have a very rigid body. And so, you know, cheetahs really are superior at the double suspension gallop, which is the gallop that all the fastest mammals use cheetahs, gazelles, hares, and sighthounds. So, it's pretty rad, and uh, that would be so awesome. He said that thing could catch coyotes easy. One of them ran through a fence and never recovered. Uh, it got oh. hurt, and it just was never the same afterwards. And, you know, he said it's kind of sketchy to take their prey away from them. They catch something, and you try to take it away from them. They don't really like that very much, and uh, well, they can yeah. really hurt you, you know? And and they're just not they're um. not dogs. They don't, they don't want to please you, really. They're, um, cheetahs are a lot very dog-like compared to other cats and males commonly live in coalitions in the wild but where brothers will live together for their whole lives or until they're older much older but even still they are just not strider they're not comet and they're not calypso you know what i mean yep they're certainly not pronto (laughs) well lauren the gold boy he is well that's strider actually pronto's the king of the prairie He's the king of the prairie. Got it. Got it. All right. Hey, I, that's all I got everyone. I hope you enjoyed all things mixed up. Uh, uh, all things mixed up. That's a combination of all things considered and all mixed up. I have done that more than I'd like to admit. (laughs) I'm rolling with it. I like it. (laughs) Lauren, is there anything you want to add? No, just, uh, you guys stay involved, check the links for ways to get involved and stay tuned for next time. We'll see you all next month, everybody. You follow your hounds, and I'll follow mine. See ya.